May I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew as we look once again into the infallible record, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. For those of you who have not been with us, we have been going through verse by verse the Gospel of Matthew that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ as the sovereign king. And we find ourselves this morning in verses 5 through 9. Follow along as I read the text. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in heaven in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount that we have been studying, we have seen that Jesus contrasts true righteousness with false righteousness. Repeatedly, we hear that all through Scripture that God hates hypocrisy. He hates ritualistic religion that does not flow from the heart. He despises ceremony that is hollow. And frequently we read through Scripture where there have been those, and we know there are those today, who attach themselves to some church or some denomination or some theological system, and they adopt all of the external behaviors of that group. And they follow many times self-appointed leaders of whatever that organization might be that herds them along like cattle, telling them what to believe, telling them what to think, how to act. And very often the leaders try to impress the herd with their superior spirituality. When in fact, many times they are mere wolves in sheep's clothing, leading sheep to the slaughter. Certainly this was the case in Jesus' day with the Jews. And we see it, of course, today. We see Men disguised as priests who are really pedophiles. We see men disguised as pastors who are frauds, con artists, deceiving people that are desperate and naive out of their life savings. Many times we see people that call themselves men of God, and yet they have no problem in blowing up innocent men, women, and children. Well, whether they be pastors or popes, pontiffs, bishops, cardinals, priests, 
rabbis, sheiks, mullahs, gurus, whatever. If they do not worship the true and the living God of the Bible, which many and most don't, then they are hypocrites. And all of their ceremonies and their rituals and their traditions are meaningless to God. All of their robes and vestments and funny little hats and tassels, phylacteries, religious collars, whatever, they're meaningless. And tragically, like lemmings, we see billions of desperate people gullibly running over the cliffs of apostasy into the abyss of eternal life, the eternal life of hell. And yet all along, many people are convinced that somehow their religious system is the true and the only one and that their spirituality is really true and that they did all of the religious things they were told to do. Therefore, they must truly be acceptable before a holy God. And yet the Lord says that this can be hypocrisy apart from Christ. Because as we've learned already, and I want to give you just a brief summary to bring us right back to where we are here today. The Lord has already defined what genuine Christians look like, what kingdom citizens really are. In the Beatitudes, he began by saying that first, a true believer is one that comes to me poor in spirit. In other words, like a beggar, they stand before a holy God in desperation and they recognize that they're in need of divine mercy and they cry out for it. And then with a spiritually enlightened mind, they mourn over their sin. They deny themselves and abandon the former self. And they are repulsed by sin that has separated them from a holy God. And then they will confess the sin and, and the, sin, the confession of sin will become a pattern of their life. And such a heart then will be gentle and meek and humble. The idea of power under control and then the Lord says that these people will have a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. And as a consequence of the radical internal transformation that occurs in salvation, the truly redeemed who understand the blood of the lamb and are overwhelmed by the mercies of God will manifest a heart that is pure. And they will be peacemakers and they will be willing to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness for as Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So indeed, the Lord gives us the marks of the truly redeemed. Our Lord's own description of kingdom citizens. The marks of genuine saving faith. The marks of those who truly have embraced the gospel of Christ. Then Jesus moves from that, as you know, and he gave us six illustrations of heart righteousness pertaining to murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation and love. And then after that, he gives us three illustrations of hypocrisy. We've already looked at the first one, that of charitable giving and the hypocrisy that can surround that. But we also see that the religious theatrics that people can play before an audience of man can occur in the venue of prayer as well. And this is where we find ourselves today in our Lord's sermon. Now, by, by way of context, if you study the rabbinic traditions of the first century, you'll see that they had corrupted prayer 
in a very profound way. Prayer had become a meaningless ritual to most of the people. They either read the prayers or they had them memorized. And certainly the scribes and Pharisees had them memorized. And they would pray three times per day at nine o'clock, at twelve o'clock and at three o'clock. And regardless of where they were, they would mindlessly repeat the Shema, which means praise. And they would say, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one and so on. And many of the other devout Jews would repeat what was called the Shimone Esrei, which means the 18, which were really a composite of 18 prayers used for special occasions. And for most all of the people, these prayers were insincere. They were merely words that flowed out of a mouth, not out of a heart. Without any thought, many times they were repeated as fast as they possibly could to kind of get it over with. Now, the scribes and Pharisees didn't repeat it fast. They would loudly enunciate every syllable to show off their spiritual prowess. And the longer the prayer, the better. And Jesus, of course, exposed the scribes and Pharisees in Mark chapter 12, verse 40, where he says that they pray for appearance sake and they offer long prayers. You see, the Pharisees of that day even loved to compete with other people by seeing how many different adjectives they could use in front of the name of God to describe his attributes. And prayer, therefore, had just become a ritual that that fueled religious pride. They were hypocrites. And as we've learned, that Greek term is the idea of an actor. They played a part. They loved to be noticed by men and they would do whatever it took to run underneath the spotlight and find the largest audience they possibly could. And now Jesus exposes this in the context of prayer. And we want to look at three aspects of prayer this morning that Jesus gives us. Very simple. Number one, how not to pray. Number two, we want to see the attitude of prayer that Jesus gives us. And thirdly, he begins to give us a model of prayer that we will see this morning. So first of all, Jesus exposes their religious religious pretense in verse five, telling us and telling them how not to pray. Notice what he says in verse five. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So, again, this was common among the Pharisees of that day. And just think what reward that must have been. How silly when you think about it. Man's applause for people to be able to say to them and even perhaps to us. Wow, isn't that a spiritual person? Listen to the eloquence of that person's prayer. Listen to the, all of the attributes that that person can put in front of the name of God. Just listen to all that spiritual jargon. Oh, what a godly man or woman that must be. Well, friends, that might impress others, but it doesn't impress God. I was on an airplane one time on my way to London, and I remember one of the Hasidic Jews. They're the ones with the long, dark robes and the hats and, 
and uh, the curls coming down out of the side and the beards and all. And this was was an older man. And and uh, since it was a long flight, it was interesting. There were at least two times I remember him standing and he got into the aisle and he faced Jerusalem and he began to bow and to and to shake his head. And he began to repeat the prayers and he did it loudly where we all saw it. In fact, one time they had the please remain seated sign on, you know, because the plane was bumpy and they had two stewardesses trying to get him to sit down. But boy, there was nothing doing. This man was going to pray. And it reminded me of this text. You know, there is perhaps no better venue to parade pretentious piosity, if you will, than in public prayer. I was at one of the governor's prayer breakfasts back several years ago, and I remember they had a woman preacher come to do the invocation, and she had a long, and I might add, ostentatious prayer. And it was really sad. It was filled with what we might call theological ebonics, as well as outright absurdities. And I remember one of the things she said, I'll never forget it. I pray, O Lord, that thy will be done, if it be thy will. I thought, well, okay, I think I know where she's going here. And after the prayer, it was interesting when she finished, you know, you sit in these large round tables with typically with a lot of people you don't know. And I remember one person saying at the close of the prayer, whoa, that woman can pray. And I thought, yeah, she had her reward in full. Yet the prayers of those who are truly seeking to commune with God with 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 a pure heart is is radically different. Notice what Jesus says about the attitude of prayer in verse six. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. Notice here, dear friends, there's no prescribed time There's no prescribed words or phrases. There's no command for some ritual or some ceremony or no commandment to have candles or prayer beads or shawls. Just a heart that desires to come into the presence of God with humility. He says, I want you to go into your inner room. The Greek term is one that's used to describe a secret chamber of that day within a person's home, typically one where... A person would keep their valuables and store their valuables. Now, this is not a prohibition against public prayer because public prayer is affirmed in numerous other places in Scripture. But rather what the Lord is doing here is trying to contrast the practice of the hypocrites with God's desire for us to be utterly private in our prayer life. Even if other people are listening, all they are doing is is merely listening to The private words of our heart going to our God with no concern whatsoever of what others might be thinking as you pray. You see, our prayers, dear friends, should should flow from the secret recesses of our hearts with the focus of our minds to be riveted exclusively on the will of the Heavenly Father. Indeed, He will repay our sincerity and our humble devotion. Notice he goes on to say in verse seven, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. You see, 
the prayers of that day had become influenced by the pagans whose prayers typically consisted of long periods of meaningless repetitions to get the God's attention. Remember, in first Kings 18, the pagan prophets of Baal were summoned to Mount Carmel with Elijah. And that text tells us that they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. And the text says, and they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Well, this was the way the pagans did it. The Lord says, do not use meaningless repetition. The Greek word is batalageo, and it's really one of those um, poetic words that is a term that mimics the sounds of, of what it's trying to describe. And what this is mimicking, mimicking here is just meaningless jabber, jabber. In other words, he's saying, don't use meaningless bottle, 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 bottle. That's what he's saying. Don't pray like that. That's what the pagans do. By the way, you see this in the tongues movement in the fringes of evangelicalism, as well as other pagan religions. You know, the idea of woulda, shoulda, coulda, bought a Yamaha, woulda, shoulda, coulda, bought a Yamaha, woulda, shoulda, coulda, bought a Yamaha or whatever it might be. And you hear different groups having different sequences of phrases And when you study them, you will see that they kind of copy whatever they've kind of learned, whatever it might be. That was the ecstatic gibberish, which, by the way, was always associated with emotionalism and paganism and was condemned in First Corinthians by the Apostle Paul and in other places. So Jesus is saying there's no need for this meaningless gibberish. To be repeated over and over again as if your heavenly father is indifferent, as if somehow he needs to be aroused or aroused from his sleep, as if some as if somehow we need to irritate him so that he will pay attention to us. That's what the Gentiles do. You don't need to pray that way. By the way, remember in Acts chapter 19, Paul had come into the town and the silversmiths in Ephesus there were infuriated and they were led by this man named Demetrius because Paul had told them that gods that were made by hands are no God at all. And these people were coming to Christ. And so, therefore, these silversmiths who were making idols to the goddess Artemis were losing a lot of business. So they were infuriated with Paul and his companions from Macedonia And it says in Acts 19.34 that they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You see, Jesus is saying here, don't be like these people. Today, you can see Muslims likewise have their prayer times, their rituals, their beads. They pray every day mechanically, repeating meaningless prayers to Allah, a God that doesn't even exist. We see Buddhists that write prayers and place them upon spinning wheels, thinking that each time the wheel turns, it will send a prayer to their God, who is, again, a figment of their imagination. We see with Roman Catholics, they will light prayer candles to assist their prayers so that they will ascend repetitiously to God as long as the candle is lit. They will also use rosaries, a string of beads used to assist them in reciting 
prayers of Hail Mary and Our Father and so on. A practice, by the way, which was adopted by Catholicism during the Middle Ages from certain aspects of Buddhism that was practiced by Spanish Muslims. So Jesus says, don't pray like the Gentiles do. Don't pray that way. Verse 8, he says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, folks, this is an incredible thought. Think of this. Our Heavenly Father knows our needs before we even ask them. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1, He has searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. You see, friends, prayer is not informing God of that which he does not already know. God is not suffering from a lack of data. Prayer is not cajoling an indifferent heavenly father into reluctantly meeting our needs. Certainly prayer is not a stage for religious theatrics. But prayer rather is an opportunity to glorify God by seeking to align our wills with his for his glory. Oh, sure, it it benefits his children as well. We know that James 516 says that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. But the purpose of prayer, dear friends, is to commune with God who longs to have us fellowship with him. And when we do, he is glorified and we are blessed. You know, I think of the idea of being an earthly father with children and now grandchildren And as I love my children and my grandchildren, you know, I long to hear from them. When the phone rings, I don't have an attitude of, oh, boy, that's my son or my daughter or my granddaughter. I don't have that at all. Why? Because I love them. How much more our Heavenly Father? When I think of my Heavenly Father, I realize that He longs to hear our praise as well as our petitions. He longs to hear our burdens and our needs. Folks, I assure you, when I get a call from my children, the world stops if they're in need. There is nothing more important than them at that point. All of us as fathers and mothers who truly love our children will exhaust ourselves to meet the needs of our children. However, often we know better than they do what they need. So too, our Heavenly Father. You see, prayer gives God an opportunity to prove himself powerful on our behalf, that he might be glorified. Prayer reveals our trust in his absolute sovereignty as we come before him, as we submit ourselves in faith to his perfect will, as we acknowledge to him that we are utterly dependent upon his divine mercy and his grace. This is why Jesus said in John fourteen thirteen, and whatever you ask in my name. That I will do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let me make sure you understand what he's saying here. He's, first of all, not saying that we just tack on in Jesus' name to a prayer. That's not the idea here. But rather, what he's saying is that 
We are to pray in Jesus' name, which means in the interest of Christ, in the interest of the kingdom. In other words, God, as I present my petition before you, I do it with a heart that longs to be in harmony with whatever Christ would have us do, whatever he has revealed in Scripture. Because you see, the name of the Lord is the sum of all of his attributes. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying according to all that he is. Jesus, I pray in your name that you might be glorified. Lord, I ask you to answer my requests according to your will, not mine. Lord, I ask you to answer these requests based upon your merit, not mine. For your glory, not for mine. And then an amazing thought and the feebleness of our cry before our Father. Even though often we are ignorant of what we're even praying for, we can be comforted knowing that, as Romans 8:26 tells us, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Oh, child of God, what a, what a marvelous thought this is. What a mysterious blessing we have in the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit of God in our prayer. When in some mysterious inter-Trinitarian communication, the Holy Spirit of God aligns our prayers that are often given in ignorance with the will of the Father who is omniscient. So that our prayers somehow are merged into his will and he answers according to what he knows is best for our good and his glory. I think even as the mercy seat in the Old Testament was never detached from the ark of his presence. So too, when we cry out for mercy. Our cries are never somehow detached from the presence of God. They are always right before him. Because as you know, when Jesus was crucified, the veil was rent. And now we have access into the very throne room of God. And we can come there in boldness to receive mercy in a time of need. So Jesus says, here's how you're not supposed to pray. And here's the proper attitude for prayer. And now he goes beyond that and he gives us a model for prayer. And I want you to see this beginning in verse 9. He says, pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now we're going to look closely over the next few minutes just at this verse. Because I want you to see this incredible model that Jesus has given us. By the way, we could go to Luke 11 and we could see that the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And this is exactly what he told them there as well. You see, the disciples recognized the immense importance of the spiritual discipline because they watched the life of our Lord who habitually rose before daybreak to commune with his father. The word of God says that he would often slip into a secret place to pray. Frequently, he would ascend the Mount of Olives to pray. If our Lord Jesus would do that, how much more should we? That's important for you to understand Jesus did not teach them a prayer. He taught them rather a model or a pattern for prayer. 
And frankly, it's a staggering thought to think that in the 70 words that he gives us in verses 9 through 13, that he could comprehensively articulate every conceivable element of genuine prayer. Only the mind of God could do such a thing. Now, commonly, this is called the Lord's Prayer. It would be better to be called the Lord's model for prayer or even the disciples prayer. But friends, what follows here is a contrast now to the ritualistic, mechanical, repetitious, ostentatious prayers of the hypocrite. And here we find the mere tips of six theological mountain peaks that contain below an infinite cache of spiritual riches. I want you to notice something before we look at this. This model for prayer is divided into two sections, each having three petitions. The first section addresses God's glory in verses 9 and 10. And the petitions are regarding his name, his kingdom and his will. You see that verses 9 and 10, it addresses God's glory, petitions regarding his name, his kingdom and his will. So we begin with God and his glory. And then the second section addresses man's need. Verses 11 through the first part of 13 petitions regarding our daily bread, forgiveness and protection from temptation. So here we have the perfect balance of God's glory and our need. Might I ask you to examine your heart? Does such a balance exist in your prayer life? Do you begin with a passion for God and his glory? Or are your prayers just all about you? Friends, prayer truly does reveal one's knowledge of God. And I have prayed over the years and continue to pray, as did Paul in Colossians 1, verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you may be filled. By the way, the Greek term is the idea of wind filling a sail and moving the ship along. He prayed that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So what is this knowledge from God concerning prayer? Well, Jesus says in Matthew six, verse nine, pray then in this way, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The folks, millions have repeated this phrase, never knowing what they were saying, never even knowing the father they are addressing. And think of where the Lord asks us to begin. He asks us to begin in our attitude and in our prayers with the idea of affirming the fatherhood of God. You see, the idea of a father denotes origin and intimacy. The Bible tells us that we are his children And our Heavenly Father loves us and He protects us and He provides for us. And as a father, we see the emphasis here on the personal, relational aspect of our union with God. He is not some ethereal God, the big guy upstairs. What a blasphemous thought. He is our Heavenly Father. Now think about this. Before our salvation, He was our judge We stood condemned in his presence because we had violated his holy standard. The word of God says that we were alienated from God. We were children of the devil, not children of God. We were children of wrath. And then after salvation, he became our gracious heavenly father. 
Might I emphasize, by the way, that we are not all God's children, as you typically hear. It's only through faith in Christ do we have the right to become children of God, as we're told in John 1.12, even to those who believe in his name. So Jesus begins with our father. And think also, dear friends, that as children, we bear the resemblance of their father. And it's crucial to begin our prayer time with such an awareness, a reminder that we are sons and daughters of the living God. And therefore, we will manifest our father's characteristics, even as I manifest the characteristics because of DNA of my father. So, too, we as children of God, our father should manifest his characteristics. And I think of DNA, by the way, in the concept of or in the context of Second Peter one four, where Peter tells us that when we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, we're made partakers of the divine nature. And I think of divine nature, DNA, get it, the divine nature. And when we come before God in prayer, we remember that, God, you are our father. There's intimacy there. There is love and there is protection. And also, as your child, I am one that should be manifesting the characteristics that have come through me or, or from you to me because I've been made a partaker of the divine nature in Christ. Beloved, the unsaved cannot claim such a thought. No matter how religious they might appear, the unsaved will have no desire to honor God the Father. They will have no passion to glorify Him. In fact, the Word of God says that they are utterly incapable of reflecting His attributes in their lives, because as Jesus said of the unbelieving Jews in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father, who is a liar, the father of lies. In Ephesians chapter two and verse two, we have a description of the unregenerate as those who are children of disobedience. They may be very religious, but as first John tells us, those who have no faith in Christ as their savior will have no love for God, no love for his children, no passion to be obedient, no appetite for the word of God, no longing to commune with the lover of their souls in prayer, no hungering and thirsting for righteousness, no ongoing habitual confession, confession of sin, so that there can always be a restoration of fellowship as we walk with Christ. That's not going to happen with the unregenerate. All they will have is a pretense of religion. Proud and arrogant, convinced of their own righteousness and instantly offended if anyone might suggest that somehow they're being deceived by false teachers and even deceiving themselves. Therefore, they do not resemble their father. But friends, because of the grace of Christ, he came along in our sins and and he transformed us. And now because of that, the word of God says that we can call him Abba, Father, which, by the way, is an Aramaic word that is transliterated in our Bibles and it's equivalent to our English word, Daddy. We could come before our father and say, Daddy, help me. Obviously, this is a term of endearment, a term of intimacy. A deeply personal term. In Romans chapter eight, verse 15, it says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
There's an amazing thought in Colossians, the book of Colossians. Let me ask you to turn there just for a moment. This is such a great thought, and I hope it will resonate in your heart all week long. In Colossians chapter 1, we see that we're not only adopted as his sons, but he tells us that we're also qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. By the way, this is Paul now. He's praying to the believers there in Colossae. Notice what he says in verse 12. I'm, I'm giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is a fascinating thought. Qualified means to empower someone. It means to authorize someone or to make someone fit for something. Now, I want you to keep this in mind, dear friends. This is an amazing thought. Our Father in heaven, who loved us when we were dead in our sins, when we were walking according to Scripture in the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, when we were sons of disobedience, when we were hopeless and godless and our minds were given to futility, when our, under, our understanding was darkened, when we were cut off from God, when we were ignorant and, and our hearts were hardened and callous and we were immoral and we were greedy and we were deserving only of wrath. Even then, our father loved us and he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And literally, this inheritance of the saints in light could be translated the portion of the lot. In other words, he's given us the portion of the lot. What is this referring to? Well, it's referring to our inheritance in heaven and the grammar in the original language is so precious here. There's two truths that just jump out at us. First of all, we see that we each have our own portion. Now, let that sink in for a moment. Our Heavenly Father has given each of us our own portion of an inheritance that we can't even fully fathom. But also, it's in the present tense. And so it's the idea, dear friends, that we have our portion right now. We are already joint heirs with Jesus. Romans 8. First Peter chapter one, verse four reminds us that we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Now hear it reserved in heaven for you. Folks, when you come to prayer, these are the glorious truths that need to be resonating within your heart. And flowing out of a heart and a doxology of praise and you come before the Lord in prayer and you begin with, oh, our father, my father. And you're praising him for all that he has done for us to think that he spared nothing, not even his only son to provide for his children eternally. What infinite, inconceivable love and mercy and grace. And it's for this reason he alone deserves all the praise. And that's why we're told next that we should hallow his name. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is an archaic English word that is used to translate a, a Greek term, hagiadzo, from which we get the word holy. And it means that God is utterly holy. He is set apart completely from sin. And so he's saying here that we are to acknowledge God our Father as holy. You see, to hallow his name is to confess his supreme holiness, to honor, to glorify him, to, to, to praise his utter perfection. His infinite purity and his righteousness. Dear friends, what a blasphemy those that we said that would say we need to learn to name it and claim it. 
We need to blab it and grab it. I shudder to even share that with you. It's so blasphemous. And what a blasphemy. Those who would repeat these sacred words that we're looking at here this morning and to do so mechanically as if it were some formula. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and on, so on and so forth. What a sad thought that is. To say it spiritually in some flippant manner. Beloved, this is the sacred name of God that we're talking about here. As you've learned, this is the ineffable tetragrammaton, the two wondrous to utter from the lips, four letters, tetragrammaton. These would be the vocalization of the word Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Hebrew name for God that is translated Lord, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, and we translate it Lord. Friends, this is the name that needs to be hallowed. The godly scribes of the Old Testament would have ceremonies before they even wrote the name. They would take a bath. They would meditate in prayer. They would even use a new instrument every time they wrote the name. My, how we've lost that. Lordy, Lordy, look who's 40. That type of silliness should never come from the lips of a child of God who wants to hallow the name of God. Oh, child of God, you must understand that his name represents all that he is. It encompasses all of his attributes, his sovereign plan, his perfect will. And prayers are empty recitations if, if we do not know with precision the truth of God and the truths that are revealed in his name. David had this in mind in Psalm 20 and verse 7. He said, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And in Psalm 138 too, he says, I will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Beloved, all through the Old Testament, we read titles and metaphors of God that underscore various characteristics of his name. These are the concepts, again, that should be within our heart when we begin to pray to our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Let me rehearse these for you as we close this morning. Imagine now we come before the, the Father. We're going to pray to him and we have come to him knowing that he indeed is our Father. Our Heavenly Father, by His grace, we have been adopted as His sons and there is intimacy. There is provision. He does not be, need to be aroused from some indifference or from His sleep. And we can now come to Him and we can hallow His name because He is Jehovah Sabaoth, which means my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. He is Jehovah Jireh, my source, my sufficiency, my provider. He is Jehovah Rahi, my guide and shepherd protector. He is Jehovah Rapha, my health, my healing, my physician. He is Jehovah Shalom, my peace, my comfort, my security. He is Jehovah Shema, my omnipresent friend, my faithful God. He is El Elyon, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. He is Elohim, the creator God, who is strong and faithful, the covenant making and the covenant keeping God. He is El Shaddai, the almighty God. And his greatest name is Jesus Christ, the perfect manifestation of God's nature and his glory. The name to which someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The name above all names, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in the word of God, we read the descriptive names and titles of the character of Christ. He is the ancient of days, 
our avenging God. He's the compassionate and gracious God, God of all grace, a jealous God, the Lord of hosts, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is our bridegroom, our banner, our consuming fire. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He's called the deliverer, defender, dwelling place, eternal king, ever present help, our fortress, the judge of all men, the king of kings, our lamp, our life, our light, a lion, our master, the mighty warrior, the potter, the redeemer, our refuge, rock, salvation, savior, our shade, our shelter, our shepherd, our shield, our song. He's the stone that causes men to stumble. He's our stronghold, our strong deliverer, our teacher, our wall of father and wall of fire. Dear friends, it goes on and on. And you cannot hallow his name if you don't know who he is. And I've just given you a sample of who he is. Dear friends, all of this must begin in our heart. We must sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15. And when all of these things are understood in your mind and in your heart by the grace of God and the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. And as you pour your life into the Word of God and immerse yourself in the Word of God, you begin to understand the fatherhood of God. And all of this motivates you to long to come into the presence of God and praise Him and to petition Him for the needs that you have but only for His will and for His glory. So I hope you begin to understand, dear friends, that the model of prayer that Jesus gave those people on that Galilean hillside was radically different than the prayers that were being offered in that day. And I would submit to you, radically different than most of what is prayed today. Well, next week we will continue to see what our Lord Jesus has taught us regarding the model for prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, what a joy it is to have your word speak to our hearts. I pray that these glorious truths will find logic within our hearts, that they will bear much fruit, and that we will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And Lord, I pray especially for someone that might be here today, anyone, that hears all of these words and they really know nothing of the Savior that, that I long to share. They know nothing of the Savior that so many of us love. Lord, I pray that you will overwhelm them with such conviction that they will run to you. Lord, make them miserable in their sins until they don the robes of righteousness that only you can give them through the power of your grace. We pray this for Jesus' sake. For His glory and in His name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.